0: The following is a paid program and does not necessarily reflect the opinions of the staff or management of visionary-related entertainment. Aloha Maui Nui. Hey, this is Josh Porter.
1: And Jason Verkhardt calling from Parts Unknown.
0: (laughs) How do you like that audio there? We got a special (laughs) fix today. All right. Emergency measures needed to be taken. <laughs> and all those times we get all those great compliments, people saying, geez, I can't believe how good Jay sounds when he's traveling. Uh, we yeah, just right. kind of blown that out of the water. But uh, hey, add, so, so good today. add some character to it, folks. Hey, this is episode, are we calling it 99.5? Can we call it that? Yeah, you, you want to do that? Go ahead. I do. I do. This, <laughs> is, epi- march to this is episode 99 and a half. Uh, we've got a reason for that. Maybe Jay will explain it. We're going to cover a little bit about Maui Energy Conference here from 19. We had a great interview with Kyle Dada of, uh, I believe, New Energy Partners, uh, and formerly of the Ulapono Initiative, actually the founding member. Uh, One of the coolest interviews I've done in in a while, and uh, a really uh, amazing kind of exchange discussing uh, what's going on in Puerto Rico and what's, uh, how that information and that experience is beginning to be transitioned here to Hawaii and vice versa, this kind of relationship building between island microgrids. Kind of similar to what happened, uh, Jay, at uh, MEC 19, uh, the Hawaii Energy Conference 19, uh, with the Public Utilities Commissions of Hawaii and the Public Utilities Commissions of California. So there's this collaboration happening between entities, which I think is helping us kind of move further down the road and learn from one another's experiences.
1: Yeah, which is amazing to see because in, in Historically, it really hasn't been that way. They all kind of do their own thing and kind of have their own R&D research groups. And, and, and if the one time of year they ever get together for a conference is the only time they can share information, and it's, and it's kind of through back channels. So this, right. this kind of really upfront collaboration is fantastic to see. Yeah, so
0: I'm excited to, to air this episode of this, um, this interview. Uh, really, really kind of uh, inspiring for me. So let's jump into our housekeeping and, and get right into it, Jay. What do you say? Yep. Okay, hey folks, this is The Solar Coaster. We are a renewable energy-themed talk show right here in lovely Maui County. We can be found Fridays at 1.05 p.m., Uncle Oi, 11.10 a.m. Also, some FM stations, 96.7 FM Central Maui, 96.5 FM Westside, 98.7 FM Upcountry
1: www.solar-coaster.com uh, carries all our old, previous, not old, but previous shows, um, covering just about everything and anything to do with renewable energies. If you have an interest in solar, uh, hydrogen technology, uh, even uh, nuclear Fusion. We have a show out there for it, so go to the solar-coaster.com website, um, click through the podcast link, and you can go through our entire back catalog. Uh, We also have some pictures up there showing where we've been, who we've been there with, and and all the other interesting things we've done. But the most important thing is, if you scroll down a little bit, there's a window to either submit questions and or get on the mailing list for the solar coaster and if you have a question that you want an answer to we will research it for you fill in all your information in that little little box and send us your questions we'll definitely get on the air for you Uh, podcasts are also available on itunes stitcher and TuneIn. they all carry the solar coaster so you can uh, take us everywhere
0: you go on your mobile devices as well we got some great sponsors: Sundrum Solar, Pantech Design, and LG Chem. Done a hell, hell, of a job in keeping us on air over the last two years. Yep. <laughs> uh, this is a call-in show, folks. 808-242-7800 is the call-in line. In This particular show, we're going to be uh, it's uh, pre-recorded, so we'll catch that hopefully via email. Let's go over to the Pantech Design Minute.
2: Welcome to this week's Pantech Design Minute. This week's focus: smart home lighting controls. Did you know that each and every home has an average 40 to 100 light fixtures? Added up, that can be a huge amount of energy. That's why your father always yelled at you to turn off the lights when you were a child. Children will always leave the lights on, even in the middle of the day. So what's the solution? Fortunately, in our automated energy future, we now have
0: other options. Smart home systems know your schedule and the sunrise sundown time specific to the time of year. Occupancy sensors detect whether you are in a room or not and can take action accordingly without ever sending your personal data out over the internet. Programmable scenes configure your lighting for a bright night hosting friends for dinner or a subdued and quiet night at home with a movie. You can even have the systems play back your normal behavior while you're on vacation so it looks like someone's home.
2: This already sounds like science fiction, but with the Pantech Designs Adapt system, you can take it even one step further because Adapt integrates your smart home systems with your solar and battery energy supply.
0: Did you know that because your eyes adjust to varying lighting conditions, if you do it slowly enough, you can reduce ambient lighting in a room by more than 30% before anyone will ever Notice the difference? And did you also know that because of the way they function, LED lighting takes a lot more power to get just a little brighter when fully on? Putting these two facts together, ADAPT can reduce the energy used by your lighting by more than half when necessary, extending your home's battery runtime or saving on your electric bill.
2: Smart Home Energy Management has matured. Check out Pantech Design's ADAPT system at PantechDesign.com today.
0: Really excited to see uh, this stuff in action here. And there's an opportunity, Jay, to go out and uh, see some of the first installs where Sonin and the Equalink system and the ADAPT software and all of this smart home technology uh, is integrated. And uh, so I think that's right around the corner. Might be able to do a live yeah. show.
1: And, and what, what always fascinates me is how like, you think, oh, gee, you know, it's kind of a boring conversation. It's really not. And it's amazing. I mean, a couple of our news articles are actually about that, is how some really simple changes in your lifestyle, or just the the equipment that you, you, you outfit your home with, can make a significant impact in in how much you uh, how much energy you use.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's awareness awareness <laughs> of energy right across the board. Yeah, That's kind of what it comes yeah, exactly. down to. Let's jump over to our news and events day. You ready?
1: Good enough.
0: Okay. Do you want to start out with the Green Tech Media uh, on from Irina?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, 140 gigawatts of solar and wind capacity was installed globally in 2018. This is a, a another new report uh, coming out. It does lump solar and wind together, right. um, but it's a significant number and it's a good it's a good bump. Uh, I've talked about it many times. Is that we actually need to be uh, closer to like 10 times this this install rate, but it's, it is accelerating. And I'm, watching, I'm I'm going over the data. Um, plotting out gra- year over year on the graph and it is accelerating we're in we're, we're a very good space as long as we can keep up the momentum
0: oh so the rate could actually get us to where we need to be the rate of acceleration if that-
1: rate of acceleration we're still yeah we're still we're still moving in and certainly moving in the right direction right <laughs>
0: Right, 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 right. Very as, opposed, good.
1: as opposed to, um, it, it, it's uh, one of the first years I think that um, solar renewable generation has actually outpaced new uh, um, non-renewable sources yeah, I'm
0: reading that being, right being now, added yeah. to the
1: grid. Yeah, uh, so that's that's actually a really really impressive. Those are
0: thing big as numbers. Well. Those are huge numbers. It says <laughs> that it's are, uh, the global market for newer power plants and renewables it was twenty five percent. And now up to 63% last year, all new power plants are renewable. 63% of all new power plants. That's something. That's huge.
1: And and as always, it comes down to which one is cheaper to make. (laughs) And And, and renewable, new renewable is cheaper, or new solar is cheaper than a new coal plant. And so which one are you going to build? Well, it's kind of an easy choice.
0: Right. You know, what's interesting here is that uh, they, they do note hydropower remains the world's largest renewable p- uh, power with an installed base of 1.172 terawatts, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: Yes. However, um, there, there really isn't a whole lot of new hydro coming online. I mean, the places that we could have put it, and we're, we're, we're all over the planet at this point. It's not like we're I discovering see. new territories and, and building new things. Um, anywhere that hydro really right. made a lot of sense, Hoover Dam, um, right. it exists. Right. And right. so it's really, really difficult to to roll out more, uh, China is actually uh, leading the way in that where they're to, they're still developing some very rural locations and adding um, hydro capacity. But but in in the developed world, I don't see it ever growing much more than it is at the point.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, Jay, you want to jump over to national uh, and talk a little bit absolutely. about absolutely. And yeah.
1: this this is well, this is um, I want to talk a little bit about these solar lights because um, this is one of those one of those um, conversations where simple changes can make a big big difference Mm -hmm. um they're they're actually talking about uganda a couple cities in uganda kampala and jinja um both are um rolling out um solar powered street lights and this is interesting because there's traditionally locations that didn't have electricity i mean they're not even wired for uh like with phone telephone poles with with electric wire down the street um so putting out these solar lights is really the only way they could do it but it's actually having a tremendous effect on safety, security, the ability yeah. to actually do work yeah. um, later later into the evenings, because it's, I think one of, the, one of the article's comments in here is that at 6 o'clock it gets pitch dark, and that's kind of the end of your day.
0: Right. <laughs> Now I remember reading this in other articles. You know, the the ability to have well energy on one hand, and then of course lighting. These are two kind of fundamental um, needs that change uh, communities uh, completely once they're once they're widely available. And, uh, yeah, I can and it's see something we absolutely take for,
1: take for granted once we have it. Sure but you, but yeah. for the folks that don't, you know.
0: This is amazing. And they say, uh, if all Ugandan cities adopted solar lighting schemes, for example, that could equate to 14,000 new jobs. I mean, direct correlation between light and employment. Isn't that amazing?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thousands and thousands of additional uh, work hours available. (laughs)
0: That's wild. Okay, uh, what is your next pick, Jay.
1: Um, I want to talk about highly compatible pollinator-friendly solar projects. Oh boy! <laughs>
0: because I have this. this... <laughs> this plays,
1: yeah, this plays right into. It. We've discussed that even even in in year one, early on, we had Paul in, um, and I do want you to actually reach out to him because I know you guys are going to be hanging out together this weekend. Yeah. Um, but but I love his comment. I love his his opinion on on this type of stuff because um, it, it is multi-use. Uh, Multi-use land use for um, solar plus farming, or even at this point, not, not farming directly on, on the, the land that's occupied by solar panels, but using it for um, natural preserve with a focus on um, deep-rooted uh, vegetation, which keeps um, soil, prevents soil erosion, helps with groundwater, uh, but also pollinators. We have a lot of issues with pollinators, not so much in Hawaii, but on the mainland, um, where they simply don't have enough to um, service all the crops
0: that we right. want to grow. you could almost yeah. you, you, you could almost see like a uh, interaction starting to happen where you have uh, alongside of these solar farms agricultural operations spring up because of the the the, the 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 there could be a significant amount of pollinators available, right? So that if they could eliminate right. that cost because there's a direct cost, right? So certain kinds like a lot of times they're orchards and long you know long-term growing, long-term maturation types of agricultural operations. But if you had you know you think into the future, if you don't have to bring in bees and they're there already, now you've got a more robust agriculture. Cultural crop that's more stable, and you make more money. Yeah, and which which is the
1: way it's supposed to go, anyway. Just trucking around the, those those hives. I mean, it actually stresses the colony significantly, which yeah. some people attribute to colony collapse disorder. So.
0: It's an exciting, uh, exciting concept. You know, the more we talk about all uh, these new ideas, uh, for example, amp air and the notion of, uh, of electrified flight and then solar farms being necessary in all of these 5,000 regional airports, for example, and then pollinators going into all the solar farms, you start to uh, get this kind of potential vision of how the uh, how the, the planet, but I mean, how America could change considerably to the, for the better uh, just by these steps that you would think were unrelated. You know, You wouldn't necessarily think these things are related, but then they start to kind of map out. It's a pretty exciting future. It's optimistic. Yeah, that's and as, 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 as I'm sure from the
1: solar guy's perspective, I really don't want to walk onto a solar farm, have to do maintenance and find a bunch of
0: bees, but it might <laughs> probably that, be the right choice. Had thought about right that, choice. of course. Had thought about just, that, yeah. It just yeah. needs to be
1: managed. <laughs> uh, but but the, the co-locating benefits are are in yeah. the many, like the tens to hundreds of millions of dollars, right. and that's actually taking into account... Um, taking out of some land out of out of agricultural service, so they're they're actually putting gotcha. land back into natural state.
0: That's amazing. So we got about four minutes, Jay. Why don't we jump? Yep. Uh, why don't we jump over into this uh, this crown uh, crown pod, the solar pod crown concept, real fast? Have you seen this uh, article, Jay, in Solar Power World? Uh, I have not. Oh, this one's exciting and maybe I, yeah, I didn't get a chance to open it up but the, basically there's this technology uh, in Solar Power World that says um, they, they are uh, creating a mounting system for regular sloped roofs of different types that doesn't have any penetrations. It's called the Solar Pod Crown and the way it works it, I've been looking at this, they, they effectively anchor it to the ridge line and that that anchoring it's, it's, it's been wind tested and it's been UL approved and that anchoring allows you to, it, when one portion kind of uh, moves a bit, it, it forces it down. So it's got this really kind of... The way they describe it actually does not sound very stable, but I guess we like the idea of a rigid, and completely unmoving system. But they uh, they say in really high and uh, high wind environments they might need to uh, anchor it uh, with a couple of penetrations, but the idea here is to not use penetrations, which of course could compromise your roof integrity, right? So it's an, yeah, that's, that's what everybody's concern is. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. When I first saw it, I thought, oh, it's got to be just for standing seam. But of course, it turned out it wasn't just for standing seam. for everything else, and it has has nothing to do with those those crimping mechanisms. So this is something really cool out there to look at, folks. It's called the solar power solar pod crown system. <laughs> I think that is uh, first time I've seen anything like this before. Really wild.
1: Yeah, I got some pictures up already. I mean, it looks it looks like a traditional solar system except for the ridge line, like you said, where there's
0: a couple of things. Yeah, and a couple of small things before we uh, wrap this. I know that the um, the uh, ho- uh, Honolulu Airport is finishing up its uh, solar install. There's about what do we got here? Something like four thousand. Three thousand. 3, is that what it is? Yeah, massive, massive. uh, So, yeah,
1: three thousand panels were installed. Um, Absolutely huge. It's actually a a part of a much larger project. They started on January seventh, but replacing all their all their lighting again with LED lighting, et cetera, et cetera, to cut the airport's electric use by half.
0: This is massive. They're talking about the full scope of this too. 98,000 light fixtures will be uh, replaced by LEDs. Uh, and then there's some new ventilation and air conditioning upgrades for probably energy efficiencies. And then ultimately, 24,000 solar panels will be installed. That sounds like a uh, lot. I go through
1: Honolulu <laughs> all the time. I could tell them how to fix the air conditioning bill is by turning it down a little
0: bit. It's, crazy, <laughs> so, it's <right>? so cold <laughs> in the gate area. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, That's crazy. Okay, so let's do this. Why don't we go over to our commercial break. When we come back, we're going to be with Kyle Dada, great interview from uh, Hawaii Energy Conference 2019, uh, from New Energy Partners. Pantech design is ushering the world into a new age of home energy automation through the convergence of smart home technologies and renewable energy management. Unifying solar energy production, intelligent energy storage, and smart breaker technologies with smart home devices, Pantech Design's complete home energy automation suite incorporates unprecedented control of lighting, shades, climate, security, hot water, electric vehicle charging, and many other systems. Contact Pantech today at pantechdesign.com. LG is a leader in the home electronics industry and manufactures some of the most popular PV panels as well as many other appliances we've come to know and appreciate over the years. The same LG brand offers the LG Chem Resu battery line for your home energy storage needs. Here in Hawaii, their primary model is the LG 10H Resu with 9.3 kilowatt hours of usable capacity. The LG 10H Resu can be used both to maximize consumption of solar energy at home and also functions as a source of backup power in the event that the grid goes down. LG Chem has increased production of their battery line for Hawaii's renewable energy solar market. Contact your local solar provider to learn more about the LG Chem 10H Resu battery. OK, so we're here with Kyle Dada, New Energy Partners,
3: formerly of Ulupono Initiative. That's right. I was the uh, the founder and general partner of the Ulupono Initiative for the last decade, uh, recently retired from them, and now am uh, helping uh, Puerto Rico out for my role in the uh, Puerto Rico Electric Authority Transformation Advisory Council, where uh, we f- support the the board of PREPA, that is known as, and the senior management, to really help them look at how do you rebuild the system going forward. Uh, and some very exciting things are happening down there that have a lot of uh, implications to what's happening here. Uh, they're just like us. They're essentially an island, roughly twice the size of Hawaiian total population, uh, and. Uh, they also are almost 71% oil dependent. Old fossil fuel units been that way for a long time. Pretty standard radial grid going over rough terrain, and you know, we missed the category Category 5 hurricane missed us barely. I might add, uh, they got hit twice in a row. Uh, so, but for the grace of God, go on. And that's one of the reasons I uh, joined the the Transformation Council. I realized that you know we in Hawaii should give back to our sister islands and I felt helping them rebuild was the right way to do it. So I've been overseeing their planning process because the first thing you have to do after you restart to get the basic services back, how are we going to plan the system going forward? And so one of the good things about being flattened is that you tend not to, to think out of the box a little bit because the box has all been destroyed, right? You are, you are out of the box. Uh, you're not sheltered by the box anymore. Uh, so. PREPA, to his credit, was much more open to ideas that possibly 10 years ago, they probably would have been a bit close to, much like our utility here. Uh, So we asked a provocative question, which is, you know, is the grid itself designed correctly to withstand this kind of of climate uh, change? Because really, we're really talking about climate adaptation in islands and coastal areas, frankly. You know, these these storms that were once in hundred years or once every year. So that's not once in hundred years anymore. It keeps happening. So the answer was no. But by asking the question, we were able to find that answer. So if the answer was no, it's not, so then what would you do instead? So, you know, I was also formerly the head of Rocky Mountain Institute in Colorado with Amory Lovins. We wrote some books together, and, you know, 10, 20 years ago, we, we wrote about the fact that you know, under the distributed world, you would want to come change the actual architecture of the grid. In other words, it's not, you don't take the same grid and sort of add these cool things at the end of it. That's what a lot of people are thinking about. That's how it's working. That's how it's working now. You actually change the entire grid itself to accommodate, to actually put these things in the center as opposed to the add-ons, right? It's a very different paradigm shift. So lo and behold, this other little island, our sister, uh, a territory, in the Caribbean, is going to do just that. So, what came out of this plan is very exciting. Uh, so, they take the island of Puerto Rico and they break it into eight mini grids. That's not a microgrid; a mini grid is the size of like a county or a district. In our case, or several districts. You know, so it's a pretty big area. It's going to have some towns in it, you know, some industrial facilities, a bunch of hamlets, all that kind of thing. And they say, okay, well. Each of those is going to be constructed and wired so that if one of those cells gets, is right in the path of the hurricane, it can't stop. It'll be flat. It's going to flatten stuff. Uh, but the other seven or six, depending on how many get flattened, will isolate immediately. Still so run on their own. So okay, that's, that's good. So the, the grid is now designed to do that. It actually has the switches, it's got the additional reinforcements, it's got this, some additional wiring inside the grids to allow that to happen. It has new what's called generation injection points, new place where generation can enter inside. And so now we're moving away from what we have here, right? We have these central power plants radi- radiating out into a radial grid, now we're going to a, a cellular grid. So what happens next? Well, you say, oh, what's the loads inside that mini grid? Oh, well, there's, there's some uh, absolutely critical loads, usually your emergency loads and, and emergency shelters and banks and various things of those, that nature, uh, sometimes uh, high-cost uh, manufacturing facilities or high-end resorts. Then you have priority loads where there's a lot of economic loss. Uh, then you have sort of everything else. And so the question is, well, how do we know inside this, this, these mini-grids that they had to isolate themselves completely, just to say for whatever reason they did, how would you get enough generation there to, to run those? So, and how would you do it quickly? Because our next hurricane could come over. So lo and behold, you of course look to solar and batteries. So just, it gives you a sense of scale. So let's just say Hawaii's in total, Honolulu, all the islands, about a 1.8 gigawatt system on peak. We're in that range. So Puerto Rico is roughly double that, it's about four gigawatts on peak and that 4 is going to decline a little bit because people are leaving Puerto Rico and the economy is not bouncing back Uh, but so it's in the same order of like under 4 over 3.5 kind of thing so they're going to retire about 1.8 gigawatts of old fossil right turn it off as they can they're going to put in 2 gigawatts 2 of solar right uh, and a gigawatt of batteries to go with it, because that's all getting pushed out to these mini-grids. And then they've got a little bit of, they still have to have a little bit of inertial generation, as you've heard, things that spin. Uh, so there's going to be some in these all in all these uh, rural grids, we'll have to have some generation that does that. Where the cities were, they already has some of that. And so there's going to be some modernization with LNG. Uh, they'll take some of the old stuff out to put the diesel away and put LNG in. Uh, there 'll be better turbines that spin better or more a lower cost and, and, this, and so that 's the core plan there 's a fight still admittedly no everyone agrees to the grid the feds, FEMA, the DOE, the governor office trepa itself everyone agrees these grids are the right way to go there 's still an arm wrestle of well. Governor's plan would like more LNG, less renewables. They'd rather do two gigawatts of LNG and one gigawatt of renewables. Everyone kind of agrees on the batteries. Uh, You know, the Feds, for whatever reason, they also want, you know, maybe another five or eight hundred megawatts of sort of centralized uh, power around San Juan. But but no one's really fighting this this fundamental change, this 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 change of the grid. And so they're sort of on the margins, fighting over well, how much we really put around San Juan and the industrial areas. So one one question for you. Yeah.
0: So. Um, uh Amazing explanation and very exciting, and I can actually see kind of the geography of, of Puerto Rico because I, I spent some time there as a as a child with family, um, families out in Rincón, which is uh, the opposite side of Puerto of of uh, San Juan, in Puerto Rico. And so you talk about eight mic, uh, mini grids, uh, two gigawatts, uh, four, four gigawatts in size. What I think I heard, right? right. And uh, I, I remember in the news, we cover news and events at the beginning of the show uh, every week. And recently there was a discussion, I think about FEMA or the qualification for funding from the federal government to rebuild the grid. Yeah. And uh, they, they, initially there was a discussion about having to stick within certain guidelines and, and really, have they, have they gotten past that? They change
3: the law. So I, I can't remember, I can't quote me on exactly when the law was changed, but FEMA did change the rules to allow uh, Puerto Rico and actually other sites that get hit now to build it back better, uh, there's actually a report from the DOE called "Build Back Better," which you know lots of the utilities signed up for, and everyone realized you, this is a very antiquated <laughs> grid. You, I mean, you don't want to rebuild that. Uh, and so they, they and so they, they recognize we would better our money we be better spend rebuilding better otherwise we're going to you know and the hurricane hits again we will have to rebuild it again and it's like you know Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill and goes back down so that that was good that that happened last year that was an important shift uh, there's 4.3 billion dollars that was allocated by Congress between FEMA the DOE and HUD to spend on this first phase and that's well within what it needs and so we're really hopeful a lot of my work right now is to can we get the governor's office, Prepa, and the feds, federal government to all agree on the plans, so and the money can be released before it gets raided by you know who? Uh, and that's important. So that's because we really help the, the Puerto Ricans out. So now let's. Uh, so what can we learn f- about here? Well, let's just go back to the fact that Hurricane Lane just missed us. So let's just like rewind the tape a little bit.
1: Okay,
3: ah. rewind the tape. So, and this is like really some, you know some some stuff that never came out in the media, uh, which is really needs to come out so that hurricane didn't hit us but if that hurricane hit us haima uh actually did do an assessment and publish a report they no one wanted to cover it about the extent of the devastation the sort of the problem that would have caused uh, and it's it's extremely significant you would have had you know thousands of people without homes you would have, you know, if the port had been hit as hard as they think, you know, you, you actually start to run out of power, you run out of water. You, have a, and you actually had a real humanitarian crisis on their hands and thousands of lives would have been lost. That's Haima's that's Hima, assessment. That's why it never got published. It's, it's, never published? Well, it's published somewhere on their website, but you never read the paper, right? Right. That would make front page news if you... I mean, it doesn't. Um, the
0: The conclusions don't necessarily surprise me as as someone in this space, um, but it's concerning that it, it that people are, it, that that kind of content's perhaps being buried um, because that's the kind of content that people need to be able to
3: make decisions based on. Hence, the hence the uh, the importance of the independent media. Um, <laughs> yes, I agree with you. you know, so, so let's bring back Puerto Rico's lessons to us. So, the truth is that. You know, our grid would have gone down too. Uh, we have, and, and part of this is, although we do have a couple of transmission lines in the mountains that also, you know, are problematic, just like the Puerto Ricans did. Uh, it's more that we have the same very largely dispersed in a high vegetation area, uh, wooden distribution poles all over Oahu and frankly all the other islands, and that's what goes. That's just gets wiped out. All these and the vegetation just, you know. Trees turn to missiles, and they just like wipe it all out. And it's really hard to pull that back. And the Hawaii Water Department, as you may or may not know, in the county of Oahu, if the power is out for more than three days, and their backup engines for the pumps don't run out, and basically they can only supply half the water the county needs because they don't have backup pumps for the other half. So, so they they it becomes, and you know, water starts to become a serious humanitarian crisis. So things start to really come off. Wheels start to come off after three or four days, and. Lane would have been a more than three or four-day hit, and then we only had that one port. So so we're very, very vulnerable. So now let's go back and talk about the, what the opportunity is, given that another you know, another territory, not like us, as a matter of fact, uh, had the, that experience, the Category 5 experience. What are they learning from? What can we learn from? This? So you know, we are looking at grid modernization. That's good. Are we asking the really in-depth fundamental question of do we have the right grid not yet no or not I mean, you know, personally advocating a lot with other groups to do it i am hopeful that during this next year's process that we will do that because it's just a question maybe the answer is oh we're great but if you don't ask the question you won't find the answer so so we, we do need to ask that question if a hurricane hit us what would happen to us do we have the right grid because again it goes back to are the distributed solar and batteries, are they add-ons to a a radial system on the the perimeter, as it were? And so we're trying to modernize the grid and make it two-way and do all that so that the perimeter can talk back to the center. That's one construct, and that's how we're sort of thinking about it now. Or is the paradigm, well, no. We shouldn't just have one center. We should have multiple centers. And then these these distributed resources are actually the heart of those centers, and yes, everything's fine. All the centers, all these distributed little centers, will talk to each other, and sure, there'll be a few sort of bigger plants that sort of talk to all of them or talk to many of them. When things are good, when things are not, they only talk to the one they're in, uh, right? And so that's a very very different paradigm, and it, it changes the the role of. Distributed renewables and batteries, the role of the customer, but it also changes how resilient we are. Because again, it goes back to what the Puerto Ricans are saying. Well, you can't stop nature, it's going to take wherever that direct hit's going to hit, it's just stronger than we are at this point in time.
0: Uh, One quick question here, so as you describe, and I try to think of it in terms of Maui, the grid that I'm most familiar with, um, perhaps it's a little smaller than what we're thinking about, maybe Oahu's a better example, but uh, when when we think about these mini-grids spread throughout an island like Oahu. Um, I, I, it seems to me like like wheeling could be a, a, a problematic uh, uh, legislation for us to be able to accomplish that, to be able to be uh, to be able to transfer energy across uh, TMKs and be able to exchange value for that. Uh, do you see that? And I, I did a couple of shows with uh, Mayor Arakawa and in uh, the previous administration here in Maui, and they brought, he brought up wheeling as one of the uh, primarily primary impediments of the adoption of renewable energies in mass. That was his perspective. So I wonder if the, if that's on the radar at all here for us being able to implement that kind of a plan is actually is actually
3: putting has uh, legislation into a law of wheeling and also have put legislation to basically legalize mini grids fully now there's more work there their version of the puc which is called the preb has to do to kind of make the regulations work so they're actually going down a, a path Given this new architecture to allow that, uh, just so that. Oh,
0: sorry, I'm excited. So, so to me, that says that this kind of a, of a communication about this model to be able to create resiliency now gives us the opportunity to, in a very compelling way, possibly change
3: the the laws around wheeling. Does that sound all right to you? Uh, yes, it, it does. It does change it because allow- I mean, as you can see, it's you got another territory, uh, virtually a state essentially. Uh, going down a path that says well actually we're going to embrace all this uh, so now uh, you, you can still do what we talked about without wheeling wheeling is just uh, allows more people to transact to each other and in some ways if you think about where transactive energy and the ledgers and blockchains going it's going to we now have accounting systems if you will that will facilitate that even further so it's all sort of part of the march of technology but it also goes into uh you know, like Taylor from Maui, let's first talk about Maui, if you thought about Maui from a mini-grid perspective. You would say, well, I mean, you obviously have East Maui and West Maui to start with, and you have Hana and certain other areas that really are sort of down these single lines, and everyone can see that they're relatively fragile. And so from the grid you have, there's going to be natural poolings of where's the grid, where's the population, where's the points of fragility, where's the natural points of isolation. So Instead of trying to fight those, you say, you know what, well, we're not going to put a five redundant lines. We're going to simply separate. We're going to put a switch and say, we're okay, we separate. So, so what would that mean for the Lahane area? What would that mean for if we had one or two in the center of Maui? What would it mean for the one sort of, you know, the whole Kaupo, Hana area? What would it mean we'd say, well, we better put some generation out there, guys, and some batteries, and we should, like, you know, think about doing that. How would we get it in there fast? Almost certainly you go down the solar battery path, right, because, you know, you can get that in and, 18 months, right? It doesn't take long to, to, to install that. It's not like you need an air permit for just 16 months to, itself to burn a fossil fuel. So, you know, you'd end up, you know, putting in uh, a lot of uh, those renewables, just like the Puerto Ricans are about to do, uh, in those zones. Um, you'd also probably look at the fossil fuel plants and say, well, this one may still operate. This other one, maybe we should turn it into something which just helps protect voltage, called a synchronous condenser. Uh, so you might take some of the older plants and say, well, in the zone, we maybe let's do this instead. Uh, so it can still play a role, synchronize the grid, but it's not really burning fossil fuels unless it has to. Right? So it's just really there to back the solar up in a, in a way that's electronic and sort of preserving the, the quality of the grid. So it, 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 it really is, a, from an engineering perspective, it's a complete sort of rearrangement of your mental furniture, as we used to say at RMI. And then you go into the business model question, which is sort of the other thing I'm working on quite a bit. Uh, I'm on the board of Blue Planet Foundation as well. and They are really taking the lead in policy right now in the rules for you know, how does the utility make money? How will it make money in the future? Because as you can probably appreciate, all the things you're talking about don't really fit with how the utility makes money now. That's, so just to, just to add and let you know, we uh, the
0: Solar Coasters had on a handful of uh, Hank's wor- world, right? So Hank Rogers himself has been in studio uh, and had a great show. And then Melissa Miyashiro, I, I believe, is your chief of staff over at the Blue Planet Foundation. Uh, Kyle Bulger uh, from Blue Planet Energy has called in, also from Puerto Rico. Okay. And uh, I forgive me if I'm missing some other staff, but a couple other great staff members. So we, they're uh, uh, longtime contributors
3: and friends at a Solar Coaster. So just so you know. Okay thank you for, for having them out there. Yeah, so, so Blue Planet has uh, been taking the lead. We have a wonderful uh, consultant, Blue Planet, Ron Bins, who was a former Colorado commissioner. And it looks like the PUC staff is taking it on board. Obviously, it's an open docket. You never know what the final thing will say. But essentially, it's about to fundamentally change how the utility makes money. Uh, so the, the very concept of rate base, we're putting something to rate base, may actually go away be something of the past. It's pretty fundamental. Uh, the concept of a rate base going away. So uh-huh. am I
0: hearing that there, a price for a kilowatt hour, is there something that, that type, that you're talking about a different model for that?
3: Well, yes. So we have heretofore, you know, when we were trying to build the, the power structure itself, the infrastructure, you know, we wanted utilities to get capital and guarantee that they would get money back on the capital so they... We do that. We regulated them. We gave them monopoly. They put things on rate base. We approved it. We gave them return on rate base, covered their expenses. That was the sort of cost of service regulation for 100 years. Doesn't uh, really. It's not working now. Uh, we're trying them to do. We want. We, now we want a bunch of other people, like all these consumers we just talked about, putting stuff in their homes. Lots of it. Well, that's not the utility, is it? They're putting in. You know, they're put, They're helping organize the system. Their grids still important because that's how they're back and forth but there's a lot of other pieces in the puzzle. So, the, uh, the rate-based approach created what's called a capital bias. You are more biased to do things that have your own capital being put in return on that, and you're passing through the fuel costs to everybody else, which is why we got stuck with these fossil fuel plants for way longer than they're doing. Now, all of us finally can see that, after telling them for many years this was true, they actually finally said, uh, in publicly in their last brief, that you know what, the best way to lower rates is to accelerate renewable energy because it's cheaper than fossil fuel. Hallelujah. We've been saying that for a long time and it's true. So that's good. So now we say, look, what if we incent you, we make money to say, we don't really care whether you're spending operating costs or capital costs, that's just accounting. Here's how much money you get to spend. It's a total cap on how much revenue you get to spend. And you know we're going to have a productivity factor that's negative. You got to be sort of improving your productivity every year. We're going to get the consumer a guaranteed give it It's like a Z factor. Uh, you know, if something really terrible happens or real we'll changes change the tax policy, we'll adjust for that. But basically, and you're going to be not, go. we're not going to come see you again for probably five to eight years. Uh, and then we'll, we'll probably roll the whole thing over and make adjustments. And we'll give you some performance incentives for doing the things we care about well. We still want to be reliable. We want you to have good customer service. We'll give you extra extra funds for that, extra rewards for doing well, penalize you for doing it poorly. We want you to accelerate renewables. and gives you a share of those savings. Every dollar you save for fossil fuel, maybe you get 10 cents. Not a bad deal. Uh, every time you, you know, we think solar plants should cost 8 cents, you're able to negotiate down to 7. Great. You get a point of a cent. Fine. Good. You, know, you get a little slice of doing the right thing. So, that's a big change because now the utility can stand back and say, hmm, well, maybe I should put in these advanced, you know, systems to, in the call center to cut costs and improve customer service because, you know, I'm gonna get rewarded for that and I got to keep that. Maybe I should do more advanced distribution system control systems so that I can, when the things break, I know just where they break and I can really manage how many trucks I need and how many linemen I need to go fix that. So all these things that I I get to, because they get to keep all the savings right as long as then but there are but they also to be more productive so so,
0: so which organizations are pro, um proposing these new models and um how far down the road is it and are we seeing this is this could this potentially happen here in months or years or w- w- what's the timeline
3: so the uh, the dock is open now it's just ending phase one so blue planet my old firm lupono and the consumer advocate uh are all pretty much saying the same thing. The county of Hawaii, county of Maui are also supportive. Same thing. The utility, I should should open up my briefcase and pull out their brief, but they're saying, you know, gradualism is a good idea. Incremental small changes will be nice. How about a productivity factor that's negative, which would mean actually productivity means your cost increase. I'm like, Mm, what? <laughs> you know, let's let's make all the pen, let's make all the rewards and penalties just one-sided. Just make them rewards, no penalties. This is, this is not, honestly actually I right. honestly I'm not making this up. These are all actually quotes. Uh, so, you, you know, uh, what I was I, when I, when I was saying in my speech yesterday, you know, if you go down to the the, the corner of uh, King and Richards in Honolulu, which is where the utility headquarters is you can actually see all these sandbags on the street. And, you know, each one of these is like another sandbag they're putting up there. And these sandbags, you know, I have lawyers coming in. they probably pay $100,000 per sandbag for each of these sandbags they're putting up. But, oh, my gosh, the credit rating will fall apart. Oh, my gosh. You know, you know, we won't be able to pay the IPs. Oh, we can't do grid modernization. We won't be able to do all the renewables. It's just sandbag after sandbag. Is,
0: is, this, um, is this, I don't want to say... Yeah, the words that are coming to my mind are like feet dragging, for example, but is this uh, uh, because the utility believes it's not going to be able to make as much money
3: uh, as they are in the current model? Right. The sandbags are because they don't believe that, but that's because they haven't embraced it. So these sandbags are all trying to hold back the tides of change, right? And they've done that for a long time. If they thought about it, they should be embracing us and they'd be like, you know what? We could make more money here than ever. They take out those sandbags and put it in a surfboard and surf these tides of change. Right? And I like the metaphor. It's a good metaphor because they would go with it and they'd say this is how it could be and it would actually be fun because if you really look at the numbers and you know I used to run Booz Allen Hamilton's utility practice for a living for 10-15 years I helped CEOs of major utilities and their boards and their, their, their chief management teams uh, understand how to make more money, how to look at regulations, how to look at the trends and how to profit off this. So I look at these and go. Oh my gosh! This is one of the most extraordinary profit-making opportunities this utility will ever get for a decade. Uh, And you're creating that case, and you're almost creating the surfboard, really bringing it to them so they can surf it, right? Right. Exactly. And And we're actually thinking it through that way. And it's and now there are you know, and they will actually do very, very well because. We haven't forgotten that you're going to have electrification and transportation. So you're actually going to have a number of new revenue streams coming in. You are going to have people leaving from solar. That's going to be fine. You actually are going to profit because you're going to get a little slice of the improvement in RPS. So you're not going to always lose money on that. You're going to slice it. There'll be some puts and takes on the revenue side. But in general, you're going to come out pretty good on the revenue side. You're a fourth quartile utility in the merger. That didn't happen. Everyone agreed there was lots of cost savings to be had, but they didn't want to do it because they're like, look, the next rate case, we got to give it all back. Right? By the time you actually get it, a lot of these, these things that could improve costs, they have a five year payback. If you have a three year rate case, you give it back before you get your money back. So you don't want to do it unless the PUC approves it. That's the old mentality. New mentality will be wait a second, we have like either five or eight years. Anything for five or eight year payback, we're we'll going to do it ourselves. We're going to keep all that. There's a lot of things that have that kind of payback ratio in operations. So there's this, this enormous opportunity to streamline operations, a really good opportunity to actually streamline some of the recurring capital expenses. You can change, if the, the, to the extent the customers, and we really embrace them of uh, put in their distributed energy, and we are able to do what's called non-wires alternatives. That's ways where you don't have to replace that transformer because you work with the customer to lowers several customers, so the load is lower, so the transformer is no longer overloaded, so we don't have to replace it, right? Oh, no, by the way, it's going to live longer, too, right? So all of a sudden, your whole maintenance cycle gets extended. Well, that's a ton of capital right there that, you, in your mind, you're saying, well, I have to keep doing that every year because of this is the way it's been as opposed to embracing it saying, wait a second, we work with the customers, they do all that. This is going to extend the lives of all these things. Look what happens to our, our total flow of cash. Now go back in the regulations saying, wait, I get to keep those savings. I haven't lost, I've not changed reliability. liability. is going up. I get to keep the savings. So it's really a mentality. It's a mentality switch and you know, we, we do like our utility, we like a lot of the executives, but it's sort of helping educate them to say, look, this is new, it's different, you're not used to it. Take a little time, try to engage with it. Try to think about, hey, what, how would this work if I was in it? How, would, you know, how could I actually profit from it and, and meet my reliability goals and meet the other consumers? And then you'll also get into the idea of, let's just take, did you just cover community-based renewables on your show? You no, know, we've touched on it and we had, I think it was actually Melissa.
0: Who brought it up? Melissa Miyashiro. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and there was something happening at that moment uh, about, I think, community-based renewables had just been brought on, CBR, whatever the terminology is. So that was the extent of it. But it, it sounded like we were kind of behind the eight ball with our adoption of community-based renewables where there's been a lot of advancement in other environments.
3: Right. So, you know, when I was at Lupona, we were very active on this, and we did get it through. Uh, and we had to also rewrite the contract. We had to get the PUC to agree to rewrite the the contract the utility uses with those community providers to basically simplify it, like Minnesota's. So we basically made our, our new contract look like Minnesota's, went from 500 pages to 26, maybe 30. Very simple, oversubscribed program. Now the reason I'm bringing it up is several fold. First, we always want this renewable future to be just and equitable, right? It's almost a right. Everyone should have the right to low cost renewable energy. Everyone should have the right to the internet. You know, we should not leave people behind from an equitable respect, we want all of our people to be educated, and you know, our kids all want to learn that way, and they will learn that and way. you're painting a very nice picture of how we'd like our society to operate, and
0: right. I, I agree completely, This democratization of energy right. uh, concept, right. so uh, right. how
3: do we get there? Right, so this is all part of the plan of the system. So, no, as you can appreciate, first of all, we know, we're doing these grids differently, so first of all, just because you're pouring in Waianae, doesn't mean you're the last person. You think about what's gonna happen here, really, when the hurricane happens about these grids. So in the old process, if you were poor in Waianae, or choose your favorite district here that has like no money, you'd probably be the last you'll put back online, right? They do the resorts, the hotels, and downtown, and all that stuff the airport, and you're like, you're kind of poly first. God knows, sorry about you guys, right? That's not gonna happen. for. Uh, right? Because we put the power out where everybody is. So everyone's sort of equal like that. So we have much better reliability to begin with, right? Just think about that first architectural point does that. Then this other thing that was very important was community renewables. So not everybody owns a home. A lot of people are apartment dwellers. Not everyone uh, can afford to, you know, need the tax credit, obviously. Half our population is living, barely getting by. So there's a number of things that democratize the benefits of this. So community solar, was a program that says, well, look, a, a third party comes in, will build these solar plants, and if you pay electric bill, you can just, they can sign you up and say, no, just pay us. The utility works out the billing backwards, and you're basically your bill goes down. You don't put any money out. Just, you just become a subscriber. Or you could put a little money out and buy like, a, a slice of a panel or something. So there's different ways they can finance that. But essentially, you can be an apartment dweller, or someone just rents a... Uh, as long as you have a utility bill, you can be part of this program, and, and that, that, that doesn't have to be next to you anymore. You don't have to wheel it.
0: I saw one of the most. Just in case you haven't seen, I saw a graphic that someone put together that just instantaneously communicated community renewables, and it was a big solar farm, and it had this overlay of color on like a stretch of panels and a family's name up top, and, and it and it did that to it. It was like different families in different chunks, and I thought, oh, community renewables explained in an infographic in a second. That's it was funny. just yeah.
3: Yeah, so so these programs now phase one happened, and you know everybody was like, go slow. We're not sure. Let's just do a few, you know. So it's you know I think Maui got two megawatts. That's maybe a couple thousand homes worth, you know. So the phase one was very very slow. Now phase one was oversubscribed. Looks like it's going great. The numbers are coming wonderfully. So the PC will launch phase two, and you know we're going to advocate to really even double what phase two is going to be. They're allocating a certain amount of this, uh, but you can see that. This is an important part of democratization that way everybody can really sign up for this without having a home, which is important. Uh, So that opens the door to a lot more lower cost, lower energy bills. That's part one of how do you democratize this. Uh, The second part, as I mentioned before, is that the the architecture itself means poor communities are equally protected as rich communities in the event of disaster. That's important. Uh, Part three, I think, gets to the part of transportation. Where, and I, and, and I think give the county of Maui credit, I know they're heading here, but, you know, we do want to electrify transportation. Now, not everyone owns a car. A lot of people take the bus. Turns out that except for, I think, the county of Hawaii where we have a very tough topography and a really long distance to go, uh, the electric buses are cheaper on a life cycle basis, which means the bus fare goes down. They're more reliable, fewer moving parts, actually easier to maintain, uh, which means the bus shows up more on time. And so, you know, the next thing we should be focusing on is we should electrify, for all the fleets where it makes sense, frankly, the bus system, because it's more important. I love the EVs, don't get me wrong. I'm happy to see EVs everywhere. You know, nice to drive a LEAF and all that. But you really want to make sure that the, uh, the bus system is the next thing because so many people, working people, uh, do the bus. And then, yes, you should have a charging station, and we were big supporters. In fact, I was one of them prime architects really pushing with this, and Sharon Suzuki was a great ally here, along with the whole community, you know, Leslie from MEDB, that's everybody, Frank Rego, to say, look, the Hitachi system, they were leaving, unfortunately, leaving kind of a mess, and so the PEC did just rule last week that that system will be transferred to Miko. Miko will upgrade it, make it better uh, over the course of, I think, 12 to 18 months. And so it it is important for the utility to, to put in the public backbone, because we, as a little opponent, when I was there, made a couple of investments, and they did okay. They, investments in, in public charging systems do nice when you're in sort of shopping malls in, in, in cities. Lots of eyeballs are there. Lots of people go by. And it's because, really, it's advertising. You make your money on the advertising, not the electrons. So, you know, we have, we, are, we have a few places like that here. There's like one or two malls in Maui. Uh, but that's pretty much it. And so, you know, you need charging stations more than just the malls. And so it's better for the utility to put them in because, again, from their perspective, they are getting more... more people adopt electric cars at their homes because they have the charging stations. They're getting more throughput, which means the rates will go down, right? Because the transmission system is largely and just largely those costs become fixed in each cycle. Uh, and so if you get more, more throughput, then the cost divided by a larger number on the bottom, kilowatt hours sold, means that the rates are going to go down, which is good. Yeah, and if they're decoupled, uh, it doesn't really make them more money one way or the other, but it does make them more competitive. So, so anyway, also in summary, there's a, I've been really honored to be a part of the group that was chosen to help Puerto Rico. I think we, we've lots more work to be done some politics involved, you got to get done. But, uh, but there's some really important lessons here for us that I think will make our islands more resilient and more affordable and more sustainable. And that's really what we want.
0: I, gotta tell you, I got chicken skin on this one. This was a great interview. Thank you so much for all the information. Really mapped out um, a handful of areas that were kind of off my radar. Uh, and it's so it's so wonderful to think that you're out there in Puerto Rico uh, uh, extending what we've learned here and then looking for opportunities to take those experiences and bring them back and help us as well. I like the exchange component of that. So this has been Kyle Datta from New Energy Partners. Thank you so much for taking the time. Pleasure, Josh. Thank you. Aloha. All right. That was our interview with Kyle Dada of New Energy Partners talking about this really remarkable relationship between Hawaii and Puerto Rico, Jay.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just unbelievable. I'm always stunned by the wealth of knowledge that these folks bring to the table. You know, he's been through all this stuff with Puerto Rico, the um, Power Authority Transformation Advisory Council, and, and now, his, now his work is work. Um, bridging bridging these uh, these
0: organizations. Yeah, I'm really excited to, to think about what the future could bring uh, and, and how this opportunity is going to unfold out there in Puerto Rico. I don't know if you saw the link I sent you earlier this morning, Jay, but there is a Solar Power International event coming up in about a month in Puerto Rico. Yep, and so yep, yep. you can see it's becoming a real hotbed of renewable tech. So hey, folks, um, th- this has been the uh, Solar Coaster. Uh, we had a great show today with Kyle. I want to thank him so much for participating. And uh, we are sponsored by uh, Sundrum. Solar, LG Chem, and Pantech Design. Y'all have a great weekend and Aloha Friday.